Well, good morning, church. Happy Sunday to you all. Really glad that you've taken the time to be with us today, even if it is uh, in this online forum. Uh, really grateful for you and for all God's doing in and through you uh, as you live to make and multiply disciples to God's glory. Uh, let me remind you of something uh, super important for us as a people. Uh, tonight, we're going to meet back together for our regular monthly uh, family meeting. As I said last, uh, last month, these meetings are always really important for us as we uh, attempt to communicate to you uh, what's vital for the life of our church and, uh, and trajectory for us as we move forward. But it's even more important during this season uh, of scatter, season where we're not together, where we can't see each other uh, in the ways that we uh, formerly could. And so I uh, want to invite you to be back with us tonight. We're going to uh, provide some updates, some missionary sending. We're going to have some time with Jason and Melissa Stuckey as they prepare to transition to Chicago. And we're also going to attempt to uh, paint a picture of uh, some of the steps we're going to take in hopes of being able to, to be back together in some form uh, here in the coming weeks. And so we want to invite you to, uh, to lean in with us tonight uh, to, be, to be online and listen into that conversation in hopes of answering the questions that we can answer uh, with clarity and maybe painting with a broad brush some of the things that we're not yet sure about. But it's going to be important for you to be back with us tonight at 530. Uh, really look forward to seeing you there. If you join me as we pray uh, this morning before we turn our attention to God's word, let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks for this Lord's Day. We thank you that we have the ability to uh, be uh, together uh, in a unique fashion, but um, knit together by uh, not just our physical space, but by the unity we have in the spirit that we are uh, together. We have one Father, one Lord, one baptism, one spirit. We're thankful that we're united in Christ. And uh, even in seasons when we're not uh, united physically, that we can be together, that we can uh, unify around your mission in your church, and that we can think well about uh, what your word says and the implications of that uh, for our lives. Uh, we pray that your word would have good effect this morning, that you would uh, give clarity and conviction, and that you would press us uh, to hope in Christ and to strategic mission uh, in the world. We ask for his sake. Amen. If you have a copy of the scriptures, if you would open to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Revelation 21 and 22 will be uh, our text this morning as we attempt to finish our teaching series, All Things New. Uh, if you uh, remember, if you've been with us for the previous uh, number of weeks, we've considered some things, some concepts, some realities that God is making new, this promise from Revelation 21 that uh, the one who is to come is going to uh, make all things new, put all things right again. We've considered the reality of uh, God giving us, the people who are in Christ, a new heart uh, in week one. Uh, following that, we considered how those with a new heart are given a new family. Those in a new family are, are promised a new home. In that home, those uh, who are in Christ uh, receive a resurrection body, a new body. They then inhabit a new world that God is making new. These all things new, new heavens and new earth as we considered last week. And this week, our final topic is a new urgency. 
perhaps a little bit disjointed from the previous weeks as we've considered these themes of what God is doing to put the world back together again. But this morning's topic is primary for us as we navigate life in the present, a new urgency. Sarah and I were watching a show uh, this week on Netflix. We finished the episode. She looked at me and said something, something like, uh, that was the funniest sad episode we've ever watched. It's like, what in the world does that mean? How's something funny and sad? You know, she reflected on these themes that, that there were some points in the episode that were like laugh out loud funny, and yet there were some, uh, some, episode, or some situations embedded in the episode that were just downright tear-jerking sad. This is going to be the happiest heavy uh, ending to a teaching series perhaps we've had, uh, the happiest sad text and topic for us to consider. And uh, here's what I mean. So look in Revelation 21, uh, beginning in verse 5. We'll kind of get a running start into the text that we're going to consider this week from where I left off last week. We see John's revelation, the one, verse 5, Revelation 21, verse 5. The one who is seated on the throne says, look, I'm making everything new. And he also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. Then verse 8, but the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, if you notice, you should have called me out if we were together uh, last week, because I did something that you're not supposed to do when you're preaching with integrity. You can't just leave out the last part of a passage, especially when that part of the passage is linked clearly with these uh, conjunction, with the conjunction, but there are all these happy joyful themes of eternity that we've considered in this series. But verse 8 pits a really important uh, parallel for us to these themes of joy and happiness. There are some, verse 8, who will not inherit this glorious fate. Some who will not receive a new heart, will not have a new family will not get a new home, will not inherit a resurrection body, will not inhabit a new world. There will not be sin in heaven, nor will there be sinners in heaven. And again, we see in Revelation 22, 14 and 15, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may be right, they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Verse, chapter 22, verse 15. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So in these final scenes, we see a fundamental divide. Some who receive this eternal glorious fate and some who are cut off. This topic is likely one of the most controversial beliefs among the historic Christian doctrines, the doctrine of hell, that God, as a just judge, will pour out his wrath on sinners in a place we commonly refer to as hell. 
And yet this idea is threaded throughout the entirety of the story of the Bible. Some are saved by grace and others are judged in God's just judgment. Jesus often speaks of these themes. A casual read of the scriptures will, see, will show that hell, this topic of judgment, is, is on Jesus' lips often. Read from Matthew 25, 31 and 40 through 46, simply to illustrate this point, taking excerpts from that text. But the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, themes from Revelation 5. He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. Place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to some on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, so says Jesus. Now what we are tempted to do and when we come to this topic, particularly as we consider uh, how combative it is with our cultures to attempt to flatten the doctrine of hell to make it a bit more palatable to modern hearers. But someone who is intellectually honest with the biblical text has to see this clear theme of judgment running throughout. So what we could say is this word is not authoritative. It's not true doesn't weigh on us. But for those of us who say it is true, it is authoritative, it does have weight over us, we cannot disregard teaching merely because it doesn't settle well on our modern sensibilities. Even passages that are often associated with God's love for all people are littered with themes of this coming judgment. Consider John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This is judgment that light has come into the world. And the people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes into the light so that his works may sh be shown to be accomplished by God. There again in this passage that is often quoted on poster board signs that God's love for the world indicates that there will be some who receive that to love, and some who reject it. The New Testament writers make it clear that such a fate awaits many. And while our temptation is to sand the rough edges off of this belief in order to make it more palatable, the biblical authors don't seem to give us the warrant to do that. They point to the clear reality that at the end of time, there will be a separation among humanity, not between Jew and Gentile, but between God's people and those who are not his, those who will spend eternity separated from him. This morning in our final sermon in this series, I want to consider why a belief in hell matters and what it should produce in those of us who are in Christ. 
I've already shown a bit of my cards in the topic of this morning's sermon, a new urgency. Let's consider why a belief in hell matters and how it might foster urgency in us. First, if you're taking notes this morning, hell, the, the doctrine of hell, the topic of hell, reminds us of God's grace. It reminds us of the grace of God shown to us who are in Christ. Look back in Revelation 21, verse 6. Then he, the one who is to come, said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. So before we're considering in verse 8, those who are, are cut off, those who are judged, we're introduced to a theme that runs throughout the scriptures, and this is the free offer of grace to those who will receive. The spring of the water of life. This calls to mind quickly two biblical passages uh, for us. One from the early chapters of Jeremiah, the prophet's writing. When he says this, my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. The condemnation Jeremiah the prophet gives to the nation of Israel is that rather than turning to God for salvation, they chose to run hard after their own idols. They didn't receive this fountain of living water that God offered. Instead, they rejected God's patient, steadfast love and pursuit. Again, we see this theme in John 4, the classic story of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. Again, remember the words of Revelation 21, 6, he will give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. Jesus says in John 4, verse 13, to this woman who he's called out on her immorality, rebellion from God. If you remember, she's come to the well to draw water. Jesus speaks to her and he says, everyone who drinks from this water, meaning the water from this, the, the well that she's receiving, anyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So Jesus offers her something much better than what she can receive in physical water. Eternal life that will satisfy and will never dry up. It's this beautiful picture of the free offer of salvation that is available to, to all graciously given by God. So what does this tell us about hell? About the eternal fate of those who are judged? It tells us that those who are there are there, this eternal cut-off state, by virtue of their unwillingness to come to the water of life, to receive that which is freely offered by God. They have chosen to persist in their waywardness and wickedness rather than turning to God in repentance and faith. This is the topic that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 2. Do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? Not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, 
You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's judgment is going to be revealed. So he says, God is demonstrating kindness and being patient to you, allowing you to run after your own whimsical desires. But recognize you are demonstrating in that a hardened and unrepentant heart. The language there is a direct parallel to the nation of Israel, to the theme that the prophets call out of the people of God in the Old Testament over and over again. You're hardened, you're stiff-necked, you're unrepentant. And he says what you're doing is you're storing up wrath for yourself. Storing up. It's the picture of a dam that collects water. It's stored up to be released at a set time. God's wrath for human sin is being stored up by those who persist in rebellion and will be seen fully at the time God has chosen. When Jesus returns, gives new bodies to his saints, invites them to the rule and reign in the new heavens and new earth that he has made, then this wrath will be released on those who persist in their rebellion. But don't miss this this but there there is a way to avoid this wrath notice the language that god or that john uses here in revelation 21 i will freely give to the thirsty freely without the cost of your perfect life without the cost of your death indiscriminately to to all to anyone who will come. I will give to the thirsty the spring of the water of life. How? Through faith in God's chosen means of escape, through faith in Christ Jesus, which at least helps us put together a, a, a point of response to the common objections to hell. How can a loving God, some say, send people to hell? And an answer to that, at least in part, is this loving God has provided a free means of avoiding this fate. His love is seen in the offer that he freely extends to all people to turn to him and be saved. I find myself incredibly helped by C.S. Lewis's thought on this topic. Admittedly, Lewis is a complex figure whose theology at points is hard to pin down, even his theology around what's going to come in the future, the doctrine of hell. But his book, The Great Divorce, has some masterful language and illustrations that, while not perfectly, fit what I believe to be a biblical understanding of what is to come. Here's one. He writes, Christianity asserts that we're going to go on forever. And that must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things that wouldn't be worth bothering about if I was going to only live for 80 years or so. But I had better bother about if I am going to go on living forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical definition for it. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You might even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop. But there may come a day when you can no longer do so. Then, 
there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy the mood, but just to grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In every one of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. What Lewis captures in that quote is that the trajectory of human life apart from God's grace is hell-bound. It is a chosen rejection to the free offer of life. Lewis, in that uh, exchange, pictures the gates of hell being locked from the inside, capturing this freely chosen notion to run hell-bound away from God. He writes in The Problem of Pain, in the long run, the answer to all who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs? To give them a fresh start? Smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that's exactly what he does. Or Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, writes this regarding hell. Hell is your freely chosen identity. To choose something other than God as your source of identity going on forever. So conversely, what does that say to those of us who are in Christ? It reminds us that that was my fate. That was my trajectory. I was running, as we sing, this hell-bound race, indifferent to the cross. And yet, those of us who are in Christ are recognizing that God arrested that hell-bound pursuit and saved us from ourselves. Secondly, the doctrine of hell reminds us or calls us to worship the one who has conquered. So it reminds us of God's grace to arrest our hell-bound pursuit, and it also calls us to worship the one who has conquered. Notice the language in verse 7 of Romans 21. The one who conquers will inherit these things. What are these, these things? The work that God is doing to make all things new, these themes that we've been talking about, the new heavens and new earth, these new glorified bodies, this new home where we rule and reign forever. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, when we get down to verse 8, this uh, Refrain these, these themes of sinfulness, sinners who will be cut off, cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Our proclivity is to size ourselves up on that list. There are a few on the list that we might pass. Sorcerers, murderers, well, perhaps that's not me. Some even seem like terms that are often used on a middle school playground, right? That of cowards. But then there are some that... Man, we, we know we're busted. Liars, sexually immoral, idolaters. This is the frustration of 
uh, all these kind of lists in the New Testament, the deeds of unrighteousness. Some we consider, man, I've passed that. That's not even on my radar. But then there are themes of, of lying, of idolatry that we know we're called. So how does it work then? How can some who know that they are liars or know that they are sexually immoral, how can some who this has marked their lives be in heaven while others are cut off? The answer John gives us in verse 7 is an inheritance of the one who has conquered, Jesus Christ. He has, in verse 7, earned the inheritance for the righteous. So this glorious reward is given to the Lamb who has conquered by God. And then, by virtue of our relationship to Him, we receive all that is His. Right? So see this connection. Verse 7, all these, this glorious faith that we've been painting is not ours intrinsically. We don't possess it. It is given as a glorious inheritance from the Father to the one who has conquered, to, to the Lamb. And by virtue of our relationship with this one who has conquered, we receive all that is his. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.8, this glorious inheritance that is for the saints. It helps provide an answer to our question. The reason sinners can stand in heaven isn't the perfection of their obedience, but the perfection of his. By virtue of his work, we are seen, we who are in Christ, we who have tasted from this living water, we're seen clothed in the righteousness of Christ without spot or blemish because that's who Jesus is and we're in him. Worthy, being worthy of heaven isn't something we earn, it's something we inherit. No one is worthy of heaven. But, on the other hand, because of Christ, everyone who is in heaven is worthy, because he is. Our understanding of worthiness is tied, and our doctrine of hell is tied very closely to our understanding of the depth of our sin. You see, if sin, if my uh, life trajectory is a few minor miscues, then perhaps correcting those miscues with religious behavior will do. But if my sin is deadly, depraved, nothing I can do to fix it or, or get out of it on my own, then I understand that the only means by which I attain heaven is through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that did for me what I could not do for myself. D. Martin Lord-Jones captures this reality, the, the idea that our hearts grow in worship as we understand the significance of what Christ has done and the wrath that we were saved from. He writes, imagine you're sitting at a table and uh, someone comes over and says, your bill has been paid by another. Lloyd John write, writes, until I know how much the bill is, I don't know whether to shake somebody's hand or fall down at his feet in adoration. You see, captured in that notion is this reality. If the depth of my sin isn't all that bad, 
then my response to the grace that has been shown me can be a mere handshake or a momentary high five. But if I recognize that apart from the grace that arrested my hellbound pursuit, I was on the way to eternal wrath being cut off from God, then I am drawn to this Christ on a cross who in that moment, in that exchange, bore the full rate of the wrath of God for my sin and for the sin of all those in Christ. It's a, a, a reality that is unfathomable for us, this wrath-bearing substitute. But he bears that wrath on the cross so that you and I don't have to. Either he bears the wrath or we bear the wrath later. And if he bears the wrath and he is the one who conquered and I receive all that is in him just by virtue of relationship with Christ, then friends, our worship, our adoration for God grows. Our appreciation for what he has done on the cross is inflamed. Our hearts are drawn to worship because we know what we were saved from. Thirdly, and we can hit this topic a bit more quickly, the idea of hell allows us to, to wait for justice. So it draws me to an appreciation for the grace of God. It calls me to worship Christ, the one who has conquered and experienced the wrath of God. And then thirdly, hell allows me to, to wait for justice. Again, this list, cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their share will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We see written elsewhere this theme of the eternal judgment that God is going to give those who are cut off, those who refuse to come to him in saving faith. I'm reading from 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 7 here. It's clear evidence of God's righteous judgment, that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom, for which you are also suffering, since it's just, just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, along with us. See, what he's writing is to, uh, to a people who are experiencing suffering and persecution, uh, trying to, as best they can, follow God in faithfulness in a world that is broken. And one of the themes that he points their attention to, one of the means by which they can persevere and endure, is to know that in the coming reality that God is going to justly judge all those who oppress them. In Matthew's gospel, it's recorded Jesus saying, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. So re reward given to those who have bowed the knee in humble repentance and faith in Christ, and then consequence given for those who are cut off from Christ, and as a result of their hell-bound pursuit, have inflicted great harm to those who are around them. Think about that list. Think about the murderers, the sexually immoral, the, the liars, the sorcerers. Think about the consequences of the sin of humans living apart from the grace of God. He says, 
the way we deal with all that calamity is to know that there is one coming who can justly judge. So what do we do in this world? We entrust ourselves to the one who will one day right all wrongs. Though enemies may oppress for a time being, in the end, the role of the oppressed and their oppressors is going to be reversed. This is seemingly what gave Jesus the ability to do this. We read in 1 Peter 2, when he, being Christ, was reviled. He didn't re revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This allows God's people, you and me, to live at peace in a world that is broken and where sinners inflict great harm. The doctrine of hell reminds us that we can trust that God will right all wrongs. And the implications of this for our obedience range from great to small. It means, small level, it means I don't have to win every argument. It means I don't have to right every wrong. It means I don't have to get bent out of shape when things don't go my way. It means I don't have to seek retribution, even for life-shaping offenses. It means I can humble myself and trust that in the final analysis, there will be one who judges, and not with our human sense of judgment that is prone to depravity, prone to sinfulness, but judges justly. He always gets it right. So there's one who's, who is coming who will give this just judgment. And then lastly, the doctrine of hell urges us to declare good news. It urges us to declare good news. Over in verse 14 of chapter 22, uh, we read these words, Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by its gates. And then verse 15, the text I read a moment ago, on the outside are those who are cut off. Blessed are those who wash their robes, this picture of cleansing, uh, the, those who humble themselves and receive this life-giving offer, new life in Christ. Blessed are those who come to him for cleansing. Our sense of urgency is drawn from this reality. We have a desire to call those who are apart from faith in Jesus to turn to him and be saved, to, to be washed, to receive new life, to be born again. 2 Thessalonians 1, we read these words, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. On that day, then notice this, when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. So notice this, this, this uh, twofold response. Some are going to experience eternal destruction apart from the Lord's presence and His glorious strength. Others, when He comes, are going to glory at Him and marvel at Him. Why? Because they have believed. It's a, it's a picture of our salvation, that we see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and as a result, this growing adoration of Christ continues to abound, it continues to be inflamed until ultimately we see 
him fully. And so what we long to do is we long to see other people, neighbors, coworkers, friends, family members who right now, the wisdom of God is foolishness, who right now have scales over their eyes, who right now their hearts are hardened. We long to see them bow the knee in faith and repentance that they might see the glories of God in the face of Christ such that when he returns, the trajectory of their life has been one of worship and adoration. So we call out to them. And in a sense, that's what I'm doing this morning. There's urgency in these words. If you've been listening to this teaching series, whether you're in Greenville or somewhere else around the world, just dropping in on what we're doing, I appeal to you to turn to Christ and be saved. That the words of the gospel message, the good news truths that we have been proclaiming as they have begun to pierce your heart, that you would not do what Israel did before, what people throughout history have done, that you would not harden your heart in unbelief, but that through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would repent and trust in Christ. And then that compels all those who have trusted in Christ, all those who experience hope that there is a great day coming, an eternal reward that awaits. It compels us with urgency for those who uh, don't know him, who are right now cut off. We want to others that we love to see and experience this glorious fate. Think about Jesus' famous words in Matthew 9 as he looked over the city of Jerusalem. How did he respond to uh, the, the plight of those who were wayward, who were cut off? Read in uh, Matthew's words in, in verse 35. Jesus continued going around all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and de dejected like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. So notice, the love that Jesus demonstrates for people compels him to experience this gut-wrenching compassion for them. It compels him to see the abundance of the harvest that is out there. It calls him to exhort people to prayer that God would raise up more laborers with urgency to call out to wayward, wandering, wounded sheep that they would come to Christ and be saved. This is the same result these great truths should have in our lives. Love for people should not lead us to change our doctrine or beliefs to make it more palatable to those who are cut off. Rather, it should call us to plead with them to turn to Jesus and be saved. Because we know, we feel the weight of the eternal wrath of God that awaits those who persist in unbelief. And friends, in a sense, this uh, world in which we inhabit, this pandemic reality helps. It helps us with this urgency. It's reminded us the last two months half of the brevity of life, 
how quickly things can change. It's given us a sense, at least I hope it has, of compassion and sympathy for the pain of others, whether that pain is physical sickness, whether that pain is loss and death of loved ones, whether that pain is relational separation, whether that pain is economic loss, whatever the pain is, I hope, rather than standing in judgment over people, that we've been the kind of people who can feel the weight of that. And what I I hope has been true for you, church, I hope it's intensified your passion for others to experience Christian hope in the midst of trials and suffering right? That we who are in Christ, I pray, have been able to navigate this season with hope and peace and comfort that comes only from a sense that my eternal destiny, my eternal fate is secure. I am His and I will forever be His. This allows us to have stability when our lives get rot. And what we long for when we can experience the hope that comes from Christ is we long for others to have that same experience, right? We want our friends, family, neighbors, peers who are not sideways to experience hope that comes only through saving faith in Christ Jesus. So my prayer is what this provokes in us, both our current reality and a consideration, though superficial, of the realities of hell, that it provokes in us urgency, that all would hear, that all would have access, that all would be prayed for by God's people, that all would see Christ's transforming work in and among the people of God, and that all would be given opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ in saving faith now so that they can join us as the people of God in the glorious inheritance that is ours as saints, both in this life and in the life to come. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we we bow asking for your saving grace in the lives of real faces and names that that we think of in this moment. It's not lost on me that that uh, consideration of of hell, eternal fate, um, isn't abstract doctrine, right? It's not uh, things that we can cut off from 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 people who we who we love. Uh, this uh, reality has names of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, perhaps spouses, friends, co-workers, people that we see on a regular basis, those who right now are cut off from saving faith, who right now have hardened their hearts in unbelief. We think about the, the millions around the world who do not know of Christ, who are cut off from him. And we, we beg of you, we, we know that the, the only hope is the, the activity of your spirit through your church. And so we pray that your spirit would blow. We, we know that the wind of the spirit blows where it wishes. And so we pray that the, the spirit's wind would blow in us and would press us out. That that activity would compel us to share the gospel 
with boldness and courage and conviction. Not because we've softened the edges of this eternal reality, but because we feel the full weight of it. Because we're compelled that others would experience the hope that is found in Christ. Would you, even this afternoon, so we have some space to reflect, would you compel us to to place phone calls or to send messages or uh, to engage in conversation with those who right now don't know the hope that is in Christ? And would you, by the power of your spirit, grant new life? Would you grant saving faith? Would you grow your church? Would you expand the reality of those who will one day gather around your throne declaring that you are worthy? Would we see that reflected in this life in a growing community of people who are declaring your praises here as a precursor of what we will do forever there? We ask for your grace, your urgency, your spirit's power in us for Christ's sake. Amen.